It is 16 million years ago, during the Miocene epoch. Mammals have exploded in diversity and have spread across the world. The world has long since healed from the brutal extinction event that took out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. However, a new global event is coming, one that will challenge these animals and plants and stress even successful families. The world is cooling. It is no longer the hot and wet world it once was. The Ice Age is coming. Fortunately, there are still places in this changing world where animals can find refuge in their tropical paradise. One such location are the Greater Antilles, a group of Caribbean islands whose members include Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and Hispaniola. The islands were once part of the Americas, but eventually separated and moved eastward about 60 million years ago. The landmass split off into many smaller islands and yet never became completely submerged. Animals and plants hitched a ride on these islands while others flew or swam to them from distant landmasses. On Hispaniola, the world is teeming with life. Tall trees that are green all year round dominate the canopy, while various ferns, fungi, and flowering plants flourish underneath their forest behemoths. A lone wandering male spider searches for his next prey. He delicately tiptoes his way across the moss-covered bark, hoping to find a juicy katydid. It has been a long while since his last meal, and he's ready to feast. He is alerted to a nearby insect, a distressed beetle who seems incapable of moving. Perfect. It's wounded. An easy prey. The spider scurries to the beetle, but just before he reaches his helpless foe, he is stuck. His legs are glued to an aromatic yellowish substance upon the tree's bark. He can't move, and now he too struggles to free himself like his would-be prey. But no matter how hard he tries, he's unable to escape. And in his worrying state, the spider does not notice an even bigger threat. Another wave of the golden liquid is moving down the trees toward him. In minutes, the wave engulfs him and the beetle and suffocates them. They are trapped. And over millions of years, the liquid hardens into a solid and protects them from the elements. They are buried, but are found again, where they are appreciated for being among the best fossils in the entire world. to another episode of Fossil Bonanza. My name is Andy Connolly, and this is a podcast dedicated to unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. In the previous episode, we looked at amber, how it's made, how it traps insects, how the insects are preserved, and in this episode, we are going to be covering our first amber site. Now, I encourage you all to listen to that previous episode to get yourself familiar with amber. But if you haven't, no worries. I make sure to cover some of the basics here along the way and give you guys a little bit of a refresher as well. Now, I mentioned previously that there are four major amber sites in the world, Lebanon, Burmese, Dominican, and the Baltic Amber. These four sites are 
routinely praised for their magnificent fossils, their abundance, and their overall impact in the cultural and paleo community. They're pretty astounding. And in a future episode, we will cover these amber sites. But for now, we are going to be focusing on the Dominican amber itself. And as a quick little side note, if you're hearing any kind of noises, that's my cat right now. <laughs> so, quick geography lesson. The Dominican Republic is located in the Caribbean and is southeast of Cuba. It and its smaller western neighbor, Haiti, reside on Hispaniola Island, which itself is part of the Greater Antilles. And the Greater Antilles include Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and the Cayman Islands. The DR has a relatively humid tropical climate with little variation in the temperatures around year, but with noticeable rainy and dry seasons. With that said, compared to other well-known amber sites, the Dominican amber is something of a sleeper hit. Its first written account was when good old Christopher Columbus met the Taino people in the late 1400s. In an initial effort to display goodwill, he offered a European-made amber necklace, which actually was Baltic amber, he offered that to the chief only to be surprised when the chief offered him amber-adorned sandals. Although to some extent the Taino people appreciated the amber and even buried people with amber necklaces, the Spaniards weren't so invested and never really looked into it, and they had plenty of it back in Europe anyway. I should also note that even though the Spaniards didn't really take much note of the amber, if they had looked hard enough, they may have found blue amber, which is the rarest type of amber yet. And although the Dominican mines produce the golden and sunset-tinged amber that we're all familiar with, every now and then blue amber can be found. And it is so rare that it can be hundreds of times the weight of gold, which is absolutely incredible. Now, for centuries, the amber went unnoticed until the mid-1900s when the first couple of scientific papers were published praising the amber and its inclusions. This caught the attention of a West German mining company who saw the high potential in it after the supply of their Baltic amber was cut off by the USSR. They set up a deed and used locals to mine the amber and send it back to Germany unprocessed. It wasn't long before the DR realized, um, this is actually a pretty good source of income for us and we want this. And so they canceled the European company's mining rights, which forced them to go bankrupt and they've held on to the mines ever since. Now the amber mining is solely in the hands of the Dominican Republic and has several export limitations. First, only local DR people can mine and process the amber. And the only amber that leaves the country are ones that have been cleaned up. Even more importantly, any amber with inclusions can leave only if it has permission from the country's National Museum of Natural History, which is pretty cool in my book. Most of the mines are located in the northern part of the country within the mountain range Cordillera Septentrional, just north of Santiago, and apologies if I butcher any names for this episode. The mines can be about 800 to 1,000 meters above sea level, and the only access to them involve hiking steep trails. Mining the amber is a laborious process with very little machinery involved. The mines are hand-dug and only lit by candlelight. And even then, they are not very pleasant as they are cramped and to comfortably stand in. The humid conditions make them quite slippery, and there is a high risk of flooding and collapse while excavating. This is a far cry from the Jurassic Park Dominican Republic mining scene, where the film displays an easy stroll from a river to a large tunnel filled with electronic lights, rock saws, and plenty of room to comfortably stand and work. 
Sometimes, the miners will go for weeks without finding a profitable seam of amber. But every now and then they will strike highly productive areas and carefully remove the amber from its walls. Once the amber is removed, the amber is cleaned up and polished, sometimes by the miners themselves, sometimes by people who own the mine. And from there, the amber begins its journey through the middlemen, collectors, and scientists. Unfortunately, many of the finer and more extravagant amber inclusions are sold to rich private collectors who can outbid museums and scientific institutes. These amber pieces are lost to the scientific community, but every now and then cherishable collectors will donate their pieces to museums free of charge. There's actually a great Atlantic article I highly recommend you to read, which focuses on the darker aspects of amber collecting. And it actually partially features a former colleague of mine, Dr. Matthew Downen, and his experiences purchasing Dominican amber spiders. I will provide a link to the article on my website, but please be aware that there is some description of human suffering and death in relation to the Burmese amber, which is very unfortunate and serves as a dark reminder that even logger Stockton can be subjected to the effects of human greed, malice, and carelessness. actually one more thing majorly wrong about that amber scene in Jurassic Park. So Hammond, the old rich man who financed the park, uses the amber from the Dominican Republic to resurrect his dinosaurs. The problem with this is that the Dominican amber is nowhere near the age of dinosaurs. And in fact, it is much, much younger and in fact was formed after all the dinosaurs completely died out. Now, I should mention here that dating amber can be very frustrating. You can't radiometric date it, and amber has a knack of remixing itself into younger rock layers. From what I understand, the Baltic amber itself has been very difficult in pinning down its time period, as it's found in many different rock layers. And the Dominican amber is no different, and I've read papers from the 90s giving it a range from 45 to 15 million years. Quite a range, given that A, it's relatively recent, and B, we are way more sure about other fossil loggers in and can even get it within a million years, sometimes less than a million years, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, but thankfully, Cuban paleontologist Dr. Euteralde Venent, again, apologies for name pronunciations, wrote a groundbreaking paper in 2001, which firmly answers this question. By analyzing the rock layers, the amber, and insects, he deduced that the Dominican amber is about 15 to 20 million years, probably about 16 million years old, which takes place during the Miocene epoch. Mind you, this is a very simple retelling of his paper. I encourage you all, if you're in the mood for some good old-fashioned paleontology detective work, to check it out. I'll provide a link to an open access version of it on my website. So what was this ancient forest like? Well, the climate is actually pretty similar to modern Hispaniola's climate. Based on the fossilized plants and arthropods, this environment was a humid, tropical forest. Many of the animal and plant inclusions found are closely related to those found in tropical conditions of Central and South America. And as such, I think it's initially tempting to say that these two forests, the ancient and modern ones, are one and the same, with some minor differences, but that's a bit untrue. Perhaps the biggest difference between the past and the present ecosystems is the complete extinction of the amber-producing tree itself 
Hymenea Proterra. Without this tree, the Dominican amber would have never happened. Although now extinct, Hymenea Proterra is survived by many relatives, all of which live in the tropics. These evergreen trees can grow up to 24 meters tall or so, and can exude a lot of resin. And even abundance of dropped copal can be found in their bases, so they're exhibiting same behaviors today as they did millions of years ago. How do we know what type of tree this amber came from? Well, not surprisingly, we can find an abundance of Hymenaea leaves, pollen, and flower inclusions. It makes sense. If you are producing the resin, you're more likely to trap your own leaves, flowers, and so forth compared to trapping a foreign tree's uh, plants instead. We can also look at the chemical makeup of the amber and compare it to other resins. The amber molecules have changed very little since it was a resin, so we can compare its chemical identity to modern tree resins. What's interesting is that H. Proterra's closest relatives live in East Africa, even though there are a whole bunch of them living in Central America. Why the huge geographic distribution? Although this hasn't been completely figured out, one explanation proposes that the tree had an ancestor who floated across the Atlantic from Africa thanks to its waterproof seed pods. The seed pods then landed on Hispaniola and grew from there. What's nice is that we can find other plant inclusions in the amber and can partially reconstruct this ancient forest. Bamboo, locusts, algae, lichen, fungi, and a host of canopy and understory tree parts are found within the amber. Flowers still in bloom can also be found with its delicate petals and sepals still preserved. We can even find indirect evidence of figs and palms thanks to preserved insects whose modern relatives rely on the plants for survival and growth. Make no mistake that this was a forest that was alive and thriving. I think this thriving forest is fully emphasized in the animals preserved in it, and man are there a bunch! Every year, new amber animals are described, and trying to keep track of them all is formidable. I read an expert's opinion from 2010 that over 1,000 extinct species of arthropods have been described, and that was 10 years ago as of this recording. And I will admit that when I tackled this episode, I was dreading that number and wondered how the heck I would talk about these inclusions without making it a list of species that would last three hours. No one would listen to that. <laughs> so what I'm going to do instead is that I'm going to cover a broad group of animals and highlight some pretty cool features that we have found from them. So obviously, arthropods are incredibly numerous in our inclusions. They're small, abundant and many of them rely on the trees for shelter and food. Ants are by far the most common animal, making up about 26% of the Dominican amber inclusions. Their colony abundance and constant crawling up and down the trees make them an easy, resin-engulfing target. And actually, the Dominican amber shows us an important step in the evolution of ants. Compared to older amber deposits, it seemed that ants had an explosion of diversity, going from a rare species during dinosaur times to a successful, almost cosmopolitan group of animals by the Miocene. There's even a great variety of ant species in the Dominican amber, such as leafcutter ants, pollen-harvesting ants, harvester ants, ants that farm aphids, and ants that eat nectar. There are also a ton of flies, midges, and gnats, and a random sampling of inclusions found that they made up about 35% of the animals. These insects, all of which are under the Diptera order, make up the most species-rich group of organisms in the Dominican amber. 
Another common inclusion are the stingless bees, which no longer live in the island. Interestingly enough, though, their inclusion commonality is more likely attributed to their lifestyle rather than their actual abundance. Modern stingless bees collect resin, mold it into an adhesive ball, stick it to their legs, and use it to make nests. Many of the stingless bee inclusions still have these resin balls on them. Very cool. In this case, perhaps these bees were careless or had an accident and got stuck while transporting the resin. Clearly, these bees need some more safety training to minimize their work accidents. One of the most significant inclusions are the spiders. Spiders are generally rare in the fossil record due to their fragility and avoidance of burial conditions after death. And in fact, over 90% of all known fossilized spiders are from amber inclusions, which is incredible. The Dominican amber alone has over 40 identified spider families, which include the jumping spiders and the orb-weaving spiders. The web itself can even be preserved and still have some of the original victims trapped in them. Even in the spiders themselves, we're seeing a weird kind of bias on who gets preserved and who doesn't. Some spider families have very different lifestyles depending on their gender. Females are usually more stationary, while males usually travel around looking for those females. As such, there was a great study done that looked at many different kinds of spider inclusions and found that there was a much, much higher ratio of male spiders to female spiders. This means that male spiders are more likely to get trapped because they are traveling into many, many different areas, including on the barks of trees. Females, on the other hand, they're just staying in one place. And they don't have to continuously expose themselves to hazards that may bury them. It's very interesting. What's really cool is we can also find camouflaging insects in the amber. Obviously, walking sticks are among the most noteworthy of this bunch, and if you're lucky, you can find inclusions with their eggs. Meanwhile, the funky tree hoppers mimic plant thorns to discourage would-be predators. There are even beetles that mimic ants to avoid predation and even crash their nests and steal their food like unwanted houseguests. This actually leads us to a great talking point, symbiosis. Symbiosis is the relationship between two different interacting organisms. Generally speaking, there are three kinds of symbiotic relationships, parasitism, mutualism, and commensalism. Parasitism is when one organism harms another by stealing its nutrition. Ticks are a common example of this, as well as the aforementioned ant-mimicking beetle. Mutualism is when both organisms benefit from their relationship, like a bird who feeds off of a tick from a rhino. Commensionalism is when one organism benefits from the relationship, but the other is not affected at all, such as a bird living in a hole of a tree. The Dominican amber displays all three of these relationships in one form or the other and helps us reconstruct this ecosystem. Let's start with parasitism. One sample had an entombed mite still feeding on a lizard's scales. Another sample had a clump of rodent hair and scat with a tick nearby. Because of their proximity, we can assume that this particular species of ticks fed on rodents. There are many samples in general that have ticks and mites, but we can get into especially creepy territory with the nematodes, also known as roundworms. Many nematodes grow up inside their hosts before they finally exit them, often killing them in the process. One midge sample 
had three large nematodes that had already exited their host, while a fourth still resided inside of its body. Another sample had a fly surrounded by a swarm of juvenile nematodes, which is especially unsettling. For conventionalism, when one organism benefits but the other is not affected, we find animals who are getting a free ride off of their partners. Mites and pseudoscorpions, which are both quite tiny, hitch a ride on large insects who transport them from tree to tree. Once transported to their new spot, they let go of their carrier and start a new life looking for some fresh food. In this case, these vagabond inclusions chose a horrible carrier as they flew right into some resin and drowned. Tough luck there. Finally, for the organisms that benefit each other, or mutualism, we have the standard algae plus fungi equals lichen, a true classic, but we can find other examples as well. Fig wasps and their respective trees directly rely on each other for survival. The wasp pollinates the fig, and in exchange, the wasp grubs eat some of the fig seeds. In this case, there are amber inclusions of fig wasps with the fig pollen still on them. And finally, we have a cool example between ants and the Phaopi caterpillars. Based on their modern relatives, these caterpillars excrete a sweet liquid that the ants drink, and in exchange, the ants protect the caterpillar from predators and parasites. What's interesting is that neither this caterpillar or its ant protector are found in modern Hispaniola, suggesting their extinction may have been intertwined. We can find other cool amber inclusions that are not just behavior related. Sometimes we can find even a microcosm of life trapped in the amber, a whole ecosystem in one stone. One example I found had a pseudoscorpion, which is small to begin with, surrounded by a swarm of tiny organisms. The pseudoscorpion would eat the mites and the tardigrades, which would eat the nematodes, which would eat the fungi and bacteria, all of which are present in one amber stone. And this is probably going to be your not-safe-for-work fact of the day, but some Dominican amber have even been found with sperm preserved in them. There's something called spermatophores, which are these little white globules that insects use to transport sperm from the males to the females. And so sometimes you can find these spermatophores in the amber itself, and if you're lucky, you can even find the sperm cells that still reside in them. Very interesting to think that we can see that reproductive process in the amber itself. Very cool. There's even one inclusion that has captured a fantastic moment in life. Hatching insects. The sample contains 47 eggs with five assassin bug nymphs. Two of the nymphs were hatching when the resin submerged them. Although egg samples have been found in ambers, there are very, very few examples of hatching insects in the entire fossil record. And the Dominican amber as just one of them. Perhaps the rarest and most sought-after inclusions are the vertebrates. For the most part, these backbone critters can escape the resin unharmed, and the best we can usually find are feathers, hair, eggshells, scat, and scales, but even then, they are quite rare. There's only one instance of a feather, in this case from a woodpecker, while the lone eggshell sample was from a hummingbird. Nonetheless, these few traces can tell us so much about this ancient world as we can even identify hair belonging to bats and scales to snakes. Very cool, 
but we do have more robust inclusions, as one amber had a shrew's ribs and vertebrae, another had a frog, and there are some with geckos and anolis lizards, but many of them are, unfortunately, in personal collections. The most recent addition to the vertebrates club is a salamander hatchling described in 2015. This is the first salamander preserved in amber ever, which is incredible. Based on its morphology, it likely lived in the trees, which is not unheard of as some modern salamanders do this as well. This leads to an unfortunate, traumatic birth. The preserved hatchling is missing an arm, and it's possible that right after it hatched, it was attacked by a predator who took off its limb. The hatchling fled its predator, but fell into the resin, where it was quickly entombed. Poor little guy. But what's interesting about all this is that no known salamanders naturally live on modern Hispaniola, or even the greater Antilles region itself. They're completely absent. Which is very strange. How did this salamander get to ancient Hispaniola? It was already an island during the Miocene, so what gives? One hypothesis is that a population of the salamanders basically hitched a ride on the island before it separated from the main continents. The salamanders enjoyed a nice life there for a long time before things took a turn for the worse when the Ice Age struck and they went extinct. The salamander fossil also brings up the question, who else lived on this island? As Amber preserves a very select group of fossils, what animals are here that we aren't finding? Thankfully, we can draw evidence from other nearby fossil deposits and do some reasonable inferences for this ancient ecosystem. Fossils of tree-dwelling animals like sloths are found in nearby contemporaneous Cuba, while Hispaniola monkey bones are found in recent cave deposits. Both of these animals would have found the ancient Dominican forest to be a suitable home for them. Parasites can also indicate who lives in this forest. A mosquito was discovered carrying a parasite called Plasmodium dominicana, whose genus causes malaria. The parasite's closest modern relative primarily infects galliform birds, which include chickens, turkeys, and a native Central American bird called chachalacas. Chachalaca fossils have been found in North America during this time period, so it's possible that the birds lived on this island and then died out. This is still speculation, though, but it would be amazing if we found a chachalaca bird feather, which would confirm this hypothesis. As I reflect on the Dominican amber, I come to realize that it's a subtle symbol of our changing world. When we see the plants in animal inclusions, we see a world that was very similar to modern Hispaniola. A humid tropical forest located on a Caribbean island. It's as if nothing has changed these past 16 million years. But upon closer inspection, we see the flaws of this idea. This Miocene world is different from our current one. Yes, we see many recognizable groups of animals and plants, but a lot of them are more closely related to animals living in the Americas than those who live in Hispaniola today. And what's more, many of these amber families no longer live on Hispaniola, like the salamanders or the stingless bees, which all live on the Americas. Some of the relatives now just live in a completely different part of the world, like the Mastotermes termite, which lives in Australia, and the Halobelia water strider, which lives in the Indo-Pacific region. Even the resin tree itself, Hymenea protera, is extinct, and its closest relative is in East Africa. Clearly, something happened 
that changed this ecosystem and killed off many of its species. The Dominican amber forest grew when the world was warm and wet, a world where rainforests flourished. But this came crashing down as the world became cooler and cooler. At first, the temperature changes were gradual, but then, about four million years ago, they plummeted. The Caribbean experienced a drop of about five to six degrees Celsius, or about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, across the region. The polar ice caps grew tremendously and locked valuable sources of water. This was now a cold and dry world. Unfortunately, tropical creatures are so ingrained in their ecological niches that even small temperature or precipitation changes can push them into extinction territory. The Dominican ambers and plants were no exception, and even their paradise was not immune to a changing world. The only way they could survive was to move towards the equator where tropical conditions persisted. But their island isolation deprived many of them of this option. With nowhere to go, the ecosystem collapsed when first the resin tree and other tropical plants died out. This caused a severe chain reaction. Animals that relied on these plants like pollinators, herbivores, and stingless bees suffered total extinction. Predators and parasites who relied on these animals starved and followed suit. The amber forest was no more. What was this new Ice Age ecosystem like? It honestly was probably similar to southeastern U.S. today, with hot summers and mild winters. That may not sound like a huge difference, but to many life forms, it was just too much. Survivors in this new subtropical world would have to persist. Animals that could eat different foods like spiders flourished in their new cooler home, and animals and plants that could withstand the cooler temperatures would eke out a living until the ice age subsided. Once it ended, the organisms began their road to recovery in a now depleted world. To this day, the Dominican amber continues to produce new inclusions that get recognized every year. Just last year in 2019, it produced its first inclusion with hatching insects, and 2015 saw its first salamander. Who knows what else will be discovered in our still incomplete ecosystem? I'm personally hoping for more feathers, which can expand our knowledge of ancient birds. Whatever it will be, it will be amazing. There's no doubt about that. I hope you enjoyed Fossil Bonanza's first episode on amber. I was initially intimidated to tackle such a weird subject, but I quickly grew to love these fossils and all their wonderful inclusions, even the ones with parasites in them. Anyway, these episodes take a lot of time to research, write, and produce. So, if you like this episode, want to see more, please subscribe to Fossil Bonanza, leave a review, and let me know if you have a really cool amber in your collection. I would love to hear from you. And if you leave a review with your amber story, I can read it at the end of my next episode. Also, I'll be releasing a transcript of this episode on my website, fossilbonanza.com. So if you know anyone that may benefit from a transcript, please send them my way. I'll also include a list of references, as well as links to all my research articles that are available open source. And hello everyone, this is Andy. Two days before the episode goes live, I just want to say thank you everyone once again for listening to this episode. Just a quick minor update in that I released a map of Lagerstätten of the world. I'm pretty happy with it. There's over 100 sites represented on that map. And if you go to my website, you can see that map on one of my main pages. 
And it's really cool. You, it's an interactive map. It, all major time periods are represented. Sites are found on all seven of the continents in many countries. And I really like it because it shows images from those sites. It has a brief description of them, as well as a link to an article that will explain them in more detail. I highly recommend if you like fossils or Lagerstatten in general to check it out. I think it's really cool, and I've already gotten a lot of positive feedback from everyone. So thank you so much for checking it out and giving me all your compliments. I appreciate that. And I also got my first review for the podcast, which is always terrifying. Uh, But this was great. This was a five-star review, and it makes me really happy to read it. So I'm just going to read it all for you all. Feed Me Food for Thought writes, Engaging speaker. We'll have the layperson excited about fossils. The podcast is enjoyable to listen to, and the speaker clearly demonstrates he is an expert on the subject of fossils. You get a bit of everything, from the history of science, to interesting anecdotes to understanding some key points in paleontology. For the lovers of science everywhere. That honestly made my heart melt. Thank you very much for writing that. I am very happy about that, and it is always wonderful to... Uh, Well, not always, because this is the first review, but it was great to read something like that. So thank you again. With that said, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Uh, It's going to be a two-parter. It's on the J-hole biota. It's really great. It's Cretaceous time in China. We get to see feathered dinosaurs, early birds, early flowering plants, and we'll find out why this amazing fossil site is called the Mesozoic Pompeii. But until then, see you next time. I love you all so much and have a great day.